Happy Easter. It's great to be together. It's great to celebrate together the, the really the, the core and foundational and central truth of Christianity, that Jesus is not in the tomb, he's not dead, he's alive, literally, really, physically, absolutely alive, and that changes everything. And that's the reason that uh, Christianity exists. I was going to say that's the reason this church exists, but actually that's the reason Christianity exists. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then all of his teaching, all of his miracles, all of his healing, all the cool things he did actually would not add up to much. He would just be another person in the history of a dying world doing some good stuff till he died. But Jesus is a different kind of king. That's what we've been thinking about for these past few weeks. He's a kind of king. And the ultimate way that Jesus is different from all other kings, all other uh, significant people, leaders, impressive people in history, the ultimate way that he's different is that he's not dead, that he conquered death itself. Now we're looking at the book of Mark. It's one of the four gospels. In the New Testament, in the Bible, we've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, four documents that were written uh, back in the first century. These were people, two of them were Jesus' disciples. One of them uh, was, was uh, kind of a research doctor who looked into things and, and chased the facts. Mark wasn't a disciple, but he was an eyewitness. He was there. Okay, he lived in Jerusalem. He saw the things happening. He was a teenager at the time. And then on that Easter Sunday, when Jesus rose from the dead, and the message started to spread, the rumors, the stories, apparently he's risen from the dead. Oh, they must have stolen his body. Oh, something's happened. Yeah, all these rumors were swirling around. Mark heard that. And then over the next ooh, 30, 40 years, 30 years or so, Mark got more and more involved. He, was, uh, he traveled with Peter. He traveled with Paul, two great uh, teachers in the early church, two of the apostles, the kind of the founding leaders. He was there alongside them. He heard the stories, he watched it, and he saw, he saw the message of the risen Christ spread, not just from Jerusalem to the surrounding area, he saw it spread right the way to Rome, to the center of the empire. He got to see in that first 30 years, really the start of a movement that has transformed the world over the past 2,000 years, turning the world upside down as people, normal people, People who are fishermen and tax collectors, unimpressive people with dodgy accents, without any training, as they went and they took the message around the world, they transformed the world. They saw lives being changed. They saw communities being changed. Eventually, the Roman Empire became Christian in some sort of way, which is astonishing. Whatever it meant politically, it was astonishing testament to the impact of the message of the risen Christ. Mark would have heard the stories of uh, all those disciples, those people that were with Jesus during those years who lived and spread the message. He would have heard the stories as they were killed and how one by one they were killed for their message that Jesus rose from the dead and not one of them ever said, okay, we made it up. Okay, we stole the body. Every one of them died absolutely convinced that Jesus had risen from the dead. And so we're coming to the end of this series, and if you'd like to turn to uh, the passage we're looking at, it's right at the end. Uh, we'll start in Mark 15, which I think is page 853. If you grab one of the church Bibles there, page 853. And just as you're finding that, uh, really, this week is sort of like a P.S., when you read Mark's gospel, the real thrust of the gospel, the real kind of climax of the message 
came last week, 15 verse 39. Let me just back up and explain that, uh, and then we'll look at the PS, which is quite a a cool PS, it's the resurrection. But um, the, the real message of Mark is that Jesus came to die. And so if you go, you don't need to turn to it, but if you went back to the very start of Mark's gospel, the very first thing he writes is this. He says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. And so he gives him two titles at the start. Jesus is the Christ, that is, he's the anointed king, the one that is going to be sent by God to establish God's purposes, and then he is the Son of God. So he's not just an elevated human, he is the Son of God who is God's king. And we know that from the first verse, but then as you read on, you discover that the people in the story didn't seem to have a clue. His family didn't get it. The religious leaders didn't get it. His own disciples didn't get it. The only people that seemed to get it, and not even people, the demons. Demons would declare who he was. They knew who he was. And sometimes the down and out people that had absolutely nothing of significance about them, sometimes they seemed to recognize who he was. But his family, his disciples, the religious leaders didn't get it. And as you read on through those first chapters of Mark's gospel, uh, and I'd encourage you sometime, read the whole thing. It takes what, 90 minutes, two hours if you read nice and slow. As you read through it, you'll find that Jesus just does miracle after miracle, healing after healing. Uh, and you go, right, yeah, because he's the Christ. He's the son of God. He's kind of proven himself, right? But, but then you scratch your head and go, well, why does he keep saying, shh, don't tell anybody. Don't, don't spread this around. Keep it quiet. And you think, well, it's a bit weird. If, if he's this important, if he's the man that God is sending to establish everything and to put things right, surely he should be kind of on the campaign trail, you know, sort of doing the political thing, kissing babies, doing photo shoots. And instead, Jesus keeps saying, shh, 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 keep, keep it quiet. Please don't tell anybody. And it's not until you get to the middle of the book, the, the hinge right in the center Uh, that you discover why he keeps saying, keep it quiet. Right in the middle, in the middle of chapter 8, Jesus is speaking to his disciples, and he says to them, what are people saying? What are the rumors about me? What's the word on the street? Who do people think I am? And they said, oh, well, some think you're John the Baptist, raised from the dead. Some think you're Elijah, or maybe one of the other prophets. They think you're cool, Jesus. And Jesus said, okay, what about you? Who do you say that I am? And for the first time in eight chapters, one of the disciples gets it, I think, on behalf of all of them. And it's Peter. He steps forward and he says, Jesus, you are the Christ. And Jesus says, right, now, let me explain what that means. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be handed over. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. And Peter said, no, 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 Jesus, you got it all wrong. Which is a bit awkward, you know, telling Jesus that he got it wrong. But Peter rebuked Jesus. No, 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 I just said you're the, you're the Christ, Jesus. You know, you're, you're, the, you're the king. But Jesus wanted him to know that actually I'm a different kind of king. I haven't come to do miracles and to be your, your genie in a bottle kind of king. I haven't come so that, so that every time you have a need, I can meet your need. In, in sort of a temporal, uh, sort of immediate sense to make life easy. That's not what I'm here for. What I'm here for is to die. There's a bigger thing going on, and I'm going to the cross, and I'm going to be killed. And so the disciples who'd been scratching their heads for eight chapters 
scratch their heads for another eight chapters. They didn't really get it. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And after eight chapters, we hear the word, you're the Christ, and we think, yeah. And then for another eight chapters, Jesus keeps on explaining time and time and time again, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to be handed over, I'm going to suffer. I've come not to be served, but I've come as a servant. I've come to not take, but to give. I've come to give ultimately my life as a ransom for many. And the disciples just kept on scratching their heads. It made no sense to them. In chapter 1, verse 1, we're told that he's the Christ and he's the Son of God. In the middle of chapter 8, we're told that he's the Christ by Peter. And finally, last week, uh, last week's message in chapter 15, it's the person who is standing closest to the cross. As Jesus was hung on the cross, dying for those six hours, the one who had the best view, he's the one that finally gets the punchline of Mark's book. Let's look at that verse again. Verse 39, when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. That's the climax of Mark's gospel. Jesus came to die because he's a different kind of king. Not the kind of king that comes to live as long as possible and get as much as possible. He came to give everything that he had and he came to die. It was part of the plan. It was the plan. But it wasn't the end of the story. And as we read on, the kind of PS that we're going to look at, we discover that actually the plan was, as Jesus had said beforehand, for him to be raised from the dead. The story doesn't end with his death in a way that's just the beginning. And so let's read on. I don't need to comment a whole lot here. I think it's fairly self-explanatory. But let's just keep reading and, and see what happened. And Mark's gonna, Mark is going to identify and, and flag up eyewitnesses. He's going to say, look, there was these three women that were eyewitnesses of the death. And two of them were eyewitnesses of where he was buried. And the three of them were eyewitnesses of the empty tomb. So the, the kind of the eyewitness thing is going to keep going. Let me read from verse 40. He says, There were also women uh, looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the Younger and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him, and there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when the evening had come, so this is Good Friday evening here, okay? When evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate, the Roman governor, uh, was surprised to hear that he should have died already. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph brought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in that linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. When the Sabbath was passed... Just a bit of background here. On the Friday, the Sabbath for the Jews starts when the sun goes down on Friday. So he died at 3 p.m. on April the 3rd, 33 AD. So it was the right anniversary this year. And so on 3 p.m., Jesus died. 
Joseph of Arimathea went to get permission for the body, got permission. That would have taken some time. By the time Jesus was placed in the tomb, it was probably close to sundown, sort of 6 p.m. And so they couldn't finish all the burial rituals. Just like in every culture, there's respect for the person who's died. And, and the idea of a body decomposing is just hideous to anybody. And so in that culture, what they'd do is they'd wrap the body with spices to kind of mask the smell. But they couldn't do it on the Friday. The sun went down and it was Sabbath. And so the Sabbath went on till Saturday evening. Then they couldn't do it because it was dark. And so first thing Sunday morning, the women are going to come to continue the burial of the body. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, brought, uh, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. I suppose you would be, wouldn't you, if you, you know, go into a place where there's supposed to be a body and there's somebody sitting there smiling at you. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He's been raised. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. Notice what the person in the tomb said. Just as Jesus told you. This was part of the plan. This was part of the plan, not just uh, you know, going back a couple of years or three years. This isn't just going back to Mark chapter 8 or Mark chapter 1. As we saw last week, uh, the, the crucifixion account is littered with uh, references and allusions to Psalm 22. That's written a thousand years almost before. This was always God's plan for his Messiah, his Christ, to come and to go to the cross and to die and then to rise again. Jesus had told them. They'd scratched their heads, but he had told them. He told them, I'm going to rise again. Obviously, he told them, I'm going to meet you in Galilee. And now these women were given the message to pass on to the disciples, go tell them to go meet Jesus. Okay, so that's, that's the, the passage. It's fairly straightforward. We're going to come back to it in a couple of minutes. But before we do, I want us to notice the next thing that's written in Mark 16. It's in square brackets, smaller font, all caps. So you know it's exciting. All right, it says, some of the earliest manuscripts do not include 16 verse 9 to 20. And then after that, you get 16 verse 9 to 20. Just look at the titles. Jesus appears to Mary Magdalene. Jesus appears to two disciples. The Great Commission. What is going on? When it says some of the earliest manuscripts do not include this. Let me just explain that because it's a bit weird. And I want to tell you that actually I am really thankful for that little line. And I've just been pondering this a little bit this week. Some of the earliest manuscripts do not include, you might think that's not the, the line to get excited about at Easter, but, but I think it's exciting for this reason. Christianity is not a myth. It's not a story that's kind of got out of hand. 
It's not a set of legends that have kind of King Arthur-like, you know, become bigger and bigger as the years passed. Christianity is based on reality. If we were to get into a time machine, which is not reality, but if we were to get into a time machine and go back to that first Easter Sunday, what we would find is what is described in the Gospels. We'd find Jesus meeting with Mary Magdalene, Jesus meeting with the disciples, literally, physically, really there, really alive. We wouldn't find them having some sort of moment, you know, where they were sort of hallucinating and going, oh, Jesus lives on in our hearts. That's not reality. Reality is he walked out of the tomb alive. Okay, it's not that this story kind of developed and grew and years later, you know how it goes, centuries later it kind of gets multiplied and expanded and ends up as this whole religious type thing. It's not that at all. Christianity is based on the reality of the resurrection. And Christianity is based on the truth of the Bible. And so when you see a line like this, what it says to me, it's like a big flag waving in the air saying, hey, anybody who cares to notice, we're serious about making sure that what Bible we have is true Bible. We're serious about making sure that the text that we read from and base our lives upon is reality and truth. It is actually what Mark wrote. See, this is how it works. We're we're holding a Bible in, in English. It's amazing. In our own language that we can own, you can go to the shop, pay a few pounds, get one. You can come to church and take one for free. Seriously, we don't mark Trinity Chippenham in our Bibles because we want you to take them. If you don't have one, please help yourself, right? We, We want you to have it. But how is it that we have Bible in English? Well, moving backwards, it's had to be translated. And it's been translated from the original Greek that it was written in. You may hear people say the Bible has been translated thousands of times, therefore errors must have crept in. Like some kind of global game of Chinese whispers. That's probably politically incorrect. But you know the game, right? Where you whisper to the person next to you and they pass on the message and by the end it's always hilarious, right? Well, people kind of give the impression that the Bible's like that. That it's been translated from this language to this language to this language to this language. And so obviously it's got to be full of errors. Well, it would be if that had happened, but it hasn't. The Bibles that we hold have been translated one time from Greek into English incredibly accurately. Now, what do they translate? How do they know what the original said? Because there's no museum where you can go and look in a case and see the original Gospel of Mark. Wish there was, be lovely, but there isn't. So how do they know what to translate? Well, what they do is they collect together every uh, manuscript, every copy of a copy of a copy that can be found. And they've got copies of copies, they've got collections of copies, and they've got quotes from the copies of copies. So there's an incredible amount of, of manuscript evidence. And then people with far bigger brains than me get together and they work on this and they say, okay, what was the original based on this? And they do this with other stuff. They do this with other historical documents. And they'll work quite happily with a dozen or 20 or you know, 50 manuscripts. Ooh, this is good stuff. New Testament, they've got over 25,000 manuscripts to work with. That means they can work to an incredible level of accuracy. And what they find is that when you get to Mark 16, verse 8, the next bit in the earliest and most trustworthy manuscripts is missing. 
Later on, you get this longer ending. And so then they've got to look at it and evaluate and say, okay, is this longer ending legitimate? And they look at it and they say, well, it looks like it's been cobbled together from the other Gospels. And it's got some uniquenesses in it that you don't find anywhere else that are just frankly a little bit weird, like we're supposed to be holding snakes and stuff. That's just not biblical. It's not healthy. Not a good idea. And, and it's just not Mark's style. If you read Mark through enough, you get to know how he writes. And he didn't write that last bit. And so when they get together to put the Bible into our language and, and to publish it, they, they have their discussion. They say, what do we do with this ending? Well, it's been in Bibles for years, but we've got to make it clear it doesn't really belong. If we leave it out, some people are going to kick up a fuss. So let's put it in, but let's make it clear this doesn't really belong here. Now, you might be saying, what? That's a bit negative. But I think that's an amazingly positive thing. Because what it means is that we are not reading an account of a myth and a legend where anything goes. We are looking at a document here that is an accurate translation of what was actually written by Mark. And after Mark 16 verse 8, did Mark write anything else? I don't know. Either he wrote something else and it's been lost, or he stopped at verse 8 and thought, that's it, job done. My focus was to get Jesus to the cross. I've uh, talked about his resurrection. The reality of the resurrection can be played out through history. So, you know, I'm going to leave it there. Or maybe he wrote another ending. What I do know is he didn't write the ending that's here. That's not his stuff. There's the uh, appearance to Mary Magdalene. That's pulled from John. There's two disciples' appearance. That's pulled from Luke. There's the Great Commission. That's pulled from Matthew. And it's all just a little bit, uh, a little bit quirky. So we don't need to worry about the longer ending. But I wanted to flag that up. I'm not going to preach it because I don't think it should really be there. But I, I wanted to flag it up to really underline the fact that as we come to the end of Mark's gospel, inadvertently, by that line being there, it flags up for us this. Christianity, the resurrection, the Bible is true. This is not a myth. It's not a legend. It's not something that's kind of got worked up and got out of hand. This is truth. And people with no agenda, don't fall into that trap. People who come from different backgrounds, different corners of the church, and people that don't believe at all in God have worked on this and have said, no, 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 this is the text. This is the Bible. This is what we should have. This is accurate. This is right. And so the Bible can be trusted, and the Bible points us to the resurrection, and the resurrection can be trusted. Now, we don't have in Mark appearances of Christ. And if all we had was an empty tomb, we would have a problem, because an empty tomb only tells you that the body is not there, right? If that's all we had, we would be kind of stretching. But actually, what we have is a massive amount of resurrection appearances, if we read Matthew 28 and Luke 24 and John 20, 21 and Acts 1, and if we read 1 Corinthians 15, in those passages there, we'd see just a, a massive amount of appearances of Christ after he rose from the dead. Not hallucinations, not visions, not dreams, appearances where he was actually physically, literally there. And we know that we can trust those uh, appearances because, for one thing, there's just a massive variety of them. Over the years, there have been people who've had kind of hallucinations. There have been groups that have had hallucinations. That's a bit freaky. But they tend to follow similar patterns. 
And what you don't have is what we have for the appearances of Jesus. Multiple appearances over a period of time to different people in different places in different circumstances. Down south in Judea, up north in Galilee, to men alone, to women alone, to groups ranging from two to 500 at one time. Jesus up close, Jesus at a distance, Jesus sitting, Jesus standing, Jesus walking. Jesus eating, Jesus talking on every appearance. He's always talking. Uh, Jesus appearing always to adults. This is not stories made up by children with vivid imaginations. There are religions that are based on that. But the appearances of Christ have this incredible diversity because it's true. People over the years have tried to say, well, if I can disprove the resurrection, I can disprove Christianity. And it's true, you could. If you can disprove the resurrection, this church is shutting down. There's nothing left. But people who've tried to disprove it time and time again have ended up coming to faith in Christ because they've looked at the evidence, they've measured it, they've, they've studied it, they've researched it, and they've said, he rose from the dead. And if he rose from the dead, then everything else he said needs to be taken very seriously. And so the ending of Mark's gospel points us back to those days, back to the reality, the truth of the resurrection and our Bibles. But let's go back to those first eight verses, the ones that are from Mark, and say, okay, what do they mean for us today? What value is there in having an Easter Sunday service where we preach Mark 16 verses 1 to 8? I just want to give three thoughts as we come to a conclusion here. First of all, Mark's ending... 16 verses 1 to 8 is perfect for Mark's gospel. And the reason I say that's relevant to us is because we've been looking at it for the past 10 weeks. In Mark's gospel, Jesus is not the glitz, impressive, powerful, you know, authority figure that we would expect. Jesus is a different kind of king. He's understated, he's humble, he's sacrificial, he's giving. He's not about himself, he's about others. And just as he kept all the way through saying, hey, sh- sh- don't, don't spread the word, keep it quiet. In the same way, I think Mark's ending is perfect because there's no fanfare. There's no, woo, here comes Jesus. It's just a report that he's risen and then it stops. It, it, it feels kind of understated, doesn't it? It feels kind of humble, which is perfect for the way Mark has presented Jesus all the way through. As well as that, I think it's a perfect one for us to read because we're in exactly the same place as the women were. It would be nice, wouldn't it, to have uh, an appearance of Christ. I I don't know anybody that's actually seen the risen Christ. I know people have dreams and visions and stuff. I've never met somebody that's had that. I've never had that. What do I have? I have an empty tomb in Jerusalem and I have a report miraculous the bible is miraculous amazing but it's a report that jesus is risen that's what the women had when they walked out of that tomb they said we've got an empty tomb and we've been told he's alive and we're in the same place as them and i find that is, is helpful for me as much as i love the other gospels with all the the impressive appearances of christ mark just kind of reaches out to me and says you know you're not alone that's what the women had And their response, it's not the kind of response that you would make up if you were making up a story. 
If you were going to sit down with a group of friends years later and, and concoct a religion and make up some stories, you, for a start, you wouldn't have women going to the tomb. In that culture, the testimony of women just didn't count for anything. Now, to us, it's equal, male, female. But in that culture, strange choice. And then to have them coming out of the tomb fearful, afraid, uh, astonished, and quiet. That doesn't make any sense. If you're going to make up a story, they're going to come out, you know, all guns blazing. They're going to be ready to take on the world. You know, they're going to be superheroes. They weren't. They were normal, frail people like you and like me. And so just as Mark's ending points us to to Mark's gospel and this very uh, humble presentation of Christ, it also, I think, reaches out to us in terms of, hey, you're in the same place as these women were. You've got an empty tomb and you've got a report of the risen Christ. But thirdly, it kind of asks a question. What is your response then? Is your response like their response? Their response initially was fear, astonishment, and silence. Let's think about that. Does does that resonate with us? First of all, fear. I was thinking about this. How does fear kind of relate to us on, on Easter Sunday morning? I thought, well, actually, it's perfect. Because maybe you came here this morning thinking, well, it's Easter. We should go to church. Who knows? You know, maybe they'll have some chocolate or something. And you come to church thinking it's just a religious thing to do. And then you discover that these people think it's actually true. Jesus actually physically, literally walked out of the tomb and he's alive. That, if that's true, that changes things. If that's true, my life needs to be changed. Not, not that I can fix it myself, but, but I can't just carry on with life as it was. Jesus being alive changes everything. For those women, as they left the tomb, they would have been thinking just that. If he's alive, this changes stuff. If he's not, we're in trouble. Either way, we're in trouble. They killed him. They're going to try to kill us. I mean, what? And so they've got all this fear that's only got worse by Jesus rising from the dead. And maybe you're here this morning thinking, actually, if this is true, I came to church for a comfortable Sunday morning, and now I'm feeling really uncomfortable. Maybe that's what God wants to do in us to stir a fear that that maybe life isn't all that I thought it was. Maybe I haven't got it all wrapped up, sewn up, and understood in my own way of thinking. Maybe fear is the right response. But not just fear. They were astonished. They were astonished that this Jesus who was crucified has been raised, that this Jesus who you expected to find in the tomb has gone on ahead of you, and you can meet him later. They were astonished that Jesus had conquered death. Just think about that. Death is no longer the enemy. If you've ever lost a loved one, you know that the ache deep inside, just the, the way you feel like your heart is being ripped apart. If you've ever lost a parent, if you've ever uh, watched somebody that you know, was, was meaningful in your life for year after year after year, and then suddenly they're gone, death seems so final, doesn't it? You look down through history, all the kings, all the rulers, all the powerful people, they always reign and rule with power until their death. And at their death, it's all over. It's finished. But those women were astonished, and I hope as we've gone through Mark, we've become more and more astonished that Jesus is a different kind of king. 
He he did not come uh, to be served, but to serve. He did not come for comfort, but to suffer. He came uh, to serve others, to give everything he had away. He came ultimately to give his life as a ransom for many. And Jesus is a different kind of king because death could not hold him. And death was not the end of his story. It was just the beginning of the rest of what he's doing in the world even today. Jesus is a different kind of king. And as we read his word, as we read the Bible, the spirit can stir us inside to say, hey, look to Jesus. Isn't he amazing? And then the final piece, fear, astonishment. For them, it was still silence, but But if we move forward, we know they did tell the disciples. They did pass on the message. The message did spread. They did become bold. It wasn't that silence was the end of their story. And maybe for some of us, we're kind of at the silent phase of, but that's not the end of the story. Because the whole of Mark's gospel, the way he's written it from beginning to end is a presentation of Jesus. Jesus' life, Jesus' compassion, Jesus' self-sacrifice, Jesus' humility, Jesus' willingness to suffer and to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, Jesus' determination to go to the cross, Jesus' willingness to die, to lay down his life for you and for me. Mark's gospel has presented Jesus to us ultimately to invite us to trust him. So Jesus is a different kind of king. The kind of king that chooses to die, the kind of king that rises from the dead, and who then invites us to trust him with our lives. To take all the things that are significant in our world, all the fears, all the doubts, all the confusions, all the future, all the what's, what's life going to hold, and even what's life beyond death going to hold, to take all of that and say, you know what, I can't handle this. But if you can defeat death, and if you died for me, you have it. I'm going to trust you with my life. I'm going to trust you with my plans, my fears, my doubts, my life here, my life to come. Jesus, I trust you. That's what Mark's gospel's been doing all the way through, presenting us with a different kind of king to invite us to trust him. Let's just take a moment and, and pause and reflect we're not going to do anything kind of weird or, or major. We're just, just going to take a moment just to, just to pause and think. Maybe in your mind you want to play over the Easter movie, if you like. Just kind of let it play and fast forward and see Jesus going to the cross and dying and being buried and then coming back to life again. God vindicating his sacrifice, saying, yes, it's accepted. Death is defeated. Maybe you want to play that over in your mind. And then maybe fast forward past the end of Mark's gospel and the big question mark, what is our response? What is it that that you're holding back? What is it that you, you still feel like, well, I need to manage this or I need to fix this or I'm in control of my life? What is it that you need to kind of hand over and say, Jesus, I'm trusting you 